Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrew Matišák, and I work as a deputy head of foreign desk in Slovak Devi Pravda, which, by the way, means truth, and it's not Russian Pravda. The war in Ukraine is entering a critical phase. Winter is coming, and it will be hard. Hard for the Ukrainian people and our forces who are fighting for their freedom, and hard for those of us who support them. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg recently wrote for the Financial Times. But what is NATO doing more than six months into Russia's war against Ukraine? Should the alliance be even more active? I talked to John Denning, a research professor of Joint Interagency, Intergovernmental and Multinational Security Studies at the U.S. Army Wars College Strategic Studies Institute. Before joining the U.S. Army War College, Dr. Danny worked for eight years as a political advisor for senior U.S. military commanders in Europe, but his views do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. government. Listen to our conversation. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on coffee. Thank you. For the link, see also a description of this episode. And now, up to the new debate. If you look at what NATO did six months after Russia started a war against Ukraine, what do you see? In general, how would you define the current approach of the alliance to its own security? Andre, thanks for asking me to speak with you. And uh, before I begin, let me first clarify that The views I'm going to express are just mine and don't necessarily reflect those of the U.S. government. I think the alliance's response so far has been dramatic and mostly positive. I mean, I think that the alliance was kind of working its way through. It was a work in progress how it responded to the 2014 crisis generated by Putin. That is the the first invasion of Ukraine and the illegal annexation of Crimea. That was a work in progress. I think what occurred in February really put that whole effort on steroids. And now we see the alliance really dramatically changing at a very high rate what it's doing. I mean, we've seen, first of all, slowly increasing defense budgets since about 2015, at least with regard to Germany and perhaps other allies. That now has dramatically increased. We've seen the, what the Germans call the Zeitenwende, this real sea change in approach in terms of the policy as well as the budgeting for defense, I think that's going to continue to unfold. Allies will feel continuing pressure to do more in terms of defense budgeting. But if we look at what the alliance has done in terms of its structure, it has uh, significantly changed its forward presence across Europe. It's decided to beef up to some degree, and we can talk about this in more detail if you want, to beef up to some degree the enhanced forward presence in the three Baltic states and Poland. I think there's more work there to be done. And of course, it's, it's decided to expand that initiative to four additional countries, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria. If you look at the political solidarity as well, at the political level, the solidarity has been frankly amazing. The fact that the alliance has not simply maintained unity, but it's actually strengthened. I think if you look at some of the things that you were hearing out of some allied capitals, I'm thinking specifically of Paris, but perhaps others, early in the war, the kind of themes they were speaking of, needing to not embarrass Putin, this sort of thing, that's not being spoken of much more these days. So the political solidarity to me is really impressive. And then finally, the efforts on the part of individual allies 
perhaps not really coordinated by, but at least in communication with NATO to maintain Ukraine's capabilities, that is to send it materiel, ammunition, et cetera. That has been really impressive. I think that the Europeans, especially the bigger players, can still do more perhaps in this regard. But uh, so far, I'm mostly impressed with what the alliance has done. The allies are reinforcing the existing battle groups and, as you said, agreed to establish four more multinational battle groups in Bulgaria, Hungary, Romania and Slovakia. How important is this step for NATO defense? And is the composition of the forces sufficient to face possible threats? Well, with regard first to the expansion of the EFP initiative to four more countries, to be honest with you, I was a bit surprised to see that uh, as an outcome of uh, NATO's deliberations. I think the alliance did this primarily for political reassurance reasons, to demonstrate solidarity. Because when I look at the map of Europe and I, I look at the array of Russian forces that are threatening Europe, and I think about the role of the EFP units, you know, primarily in the Baltic states and Poland, they've been used as tripwire forces to deter Russia with the threat of a punishment if the Russians were to come across the border, right? I don't see the same need for that sort of defense, uh, certainly with regard to Slovakia and Hungary, to be honest, and maybe even with regard to Bulgaria. I think you could make an argument that Romania faces more of a proximate ground force threat from the Russians, specifically when we think about Russian forces still resident in Moldova uh, and those that are attempting to create what some analysts think of as a, a land bridge over to Odessa in Ukraine. You know, that could create some real headaches for Bucharest. That expansion to Romania made sense to me. I'm not so sure about the others. But with regard to now what the alliance has done to strengthen the EFP units, at least the three in the Baltic states and Poland, that is assigning some brigade headquarters or capabilities. You know, I think, and Michael O'Hanlon and I had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal recently on this, there's a growing risk of a disconnect in the rhetoric and the reality. And what coming sense? At, well, coming out of the Madrid summit, the alliance leadership spoke of the dramatic changes in deterrence and defense posture. We heard a lot of talk about moving toward deterrence by denial and away from the tripwire focus over the last couple of years. But when you look at the reality of what the Allies have decided to do, they're not going to create or stand up brigades in the Baltic states and Poland under the EFP banner. Instead, they're going to expand the manpower slightly by adding some brigade headquarters elements. Now, that's a very vague phrase. And it's really going to depend upon the framework nation involved. Of course, the UK leads in Estonia, the, German, the uh, Canadians in Latvia, the Germans in Lithuania, and the US in Poland. So the framework nations are perhaps going to approach this new commitment, expanded commitment differently. But we're not going to see brigades under EFP in these countries on a persistent basis. That's not the plan. Many of us uh, on this side of the Atlantic, but also in Europe, I have been calling for the alliance to establish brigades there. We think that's what's needed to achieve a, a stronger defense, to get us toward deterrence by denial, to prevent the Russians from achieving any kind of a fait accompli land grab that would then you know, put the alliance on its heels. I think there's a lot more room for improvement here in the EFP initiative in terms of what the alliance has done and what, it, what it's outlined. 
At the NATO summit in June uh, in Madrid, uh, Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg also said that alliance to boost the number of troops on high alert to over 300,000. And this really sounds like a substantial number. Uh, but do we know how this will work in reality? Not yet. Many of us were, were kind of uh, taken aback by this announcement. It was a, it's a big deal. Obviously, 300,000 troops sounds like a, a lot of troops, and it is. But in terms of what this, this new, what they're calling the new uh, force model, we really don't know what that's going to be in detail. We know that there'll be basically three readiness levels. There'll be some small percent, I don't know, maybe 10 to 20% of that 300,000 will be the very high readiness force. Similar to the, the BJTF, very high readiness joint task force within the current NATO response force or NRF. Incidentally, the NRF is going to be going away as a result of this new force model. So anyway, we know that some small portion of the 300,000 will be this high readiness element. There'll be then a follow-on element of some kind. Let's say that'll be between 30 and 50%, perhaps. And then the remainder of this thing will be longer-term follow-on forces that would come online in the weeks and really months after some conflict has started. Beyond that, though, we have no clue on who will be the contributors, where will this force be, who will lead it, etc. None of that is known. And I think the Alliance is currently working very hard on hammering out those details. But as of yet, it's all kind of very opaque. John, in March, you wrote an op-ed for Politico titled, yes, Russia might invade a NATO country. Here is how the alliance should prepare. Do you still think that Russia might invade a NATO country, taking into account that Russia is struggling against Ukraine's armed forces? Andre, I think that we can take nothing for granted when it comes to Russia and specifically Mr. Putin. Very few people outside those who had access to very specialized, extremely sensitive intelligence reporting, very few people had any sense that Putin was going to pull the trigger and invade Ukraine before February 24th, six months ago this year. So I think that while we can't take anything for granted, of course we know that the Russian army is now somewhat weakened compared to what it was six months ago, and probably unable to mount a large-scale land attack against a NATO neighbor. But we have to remember that Russia still retains much of its most advanced land power capabilities. We know that a lot, most of what it has lost in Ukraine to date, have been older Soviet-era platforms. Right. So there's still a lot more of the newer equipment available to the Russian military. And of course, it still has very powerful nuclear, naval, air and soft capabilities that it has not really used to the full extent in the war against Ukraine. Uh, you know, military planners in Russia, just like in uh, allied countries in my own country, they do a lot of worst case scenario planning. So I think we can be fairly certain that the Russians have not committed all of their potential military power in this conflict to date. And so I think that's why, again, even though we might not expect a large-scale land invasion tomorrow of a NATO neighbor of Russia's, uh, we still can't take anything for granted. So taking into account what you are saying about Russia and picking up on some of your previous points about how the alliance reacted to the invasion, what's next for NATO? Well, I had hoped to see as I mentioned, a little more stronger commitment to forward presence in the Baltic states and Poland on the part of the allies. 
I think there's still room for improvement there. We have to remember, of course, that in order to achieve that goal, the Baltic states in particular need to be able to uh, host those size units. And so I think there's homework to be done both among the framework nations and the host countries uh, where these units would be based. So I'd like to see us doing more in terms of permanent forward presence in Eastern Europe. And by permanent, I mean to include units that are there for longer than six to nine months, which is the current rotation, maybe even to include family members accompanying those soldiers, but in, in any case for longer than just a few months. I think we also need to better refine the kinds of capabilities we have arrayed in Eastern Europe. Yes, uh, I think this is quite important because sometimes it's not so easy to understand how all those things fit together. What do you think? Yeah, you know, early on in the conflict, uh, I think all the allies were very eager to project any kind of reassurance and deterrence they could to Eastern Europe. And so we sent a lot, we the US and we the allies, all sent a lot of uh, infantry, for example, right? In my own country, sent forward the uh, 18th Airborne Corps and the, I think it was the, the 101st Airborne. These units were an appropriate response. These kinds of capabilities were appropriate because they were rapid response. They're light, they're easy to get forward quickly. However, as we now are adapting to a longer term challenge from Russia, and as the war drags on, we need to consider what kind of capabilities do we really need there over the medium and long run, depending on how long this lasts, in terms of both deterring the Russians as well as reassuring allies. And we might consider what do we need there to continue to engage Russia in this unfolding hybrid war that the Russians have unleashed against the West for the last almost 10 years now. Obviously, I don't think light infantry is the answer, right? I think in some cases we need heavy armored armored forces. I think that's appropriate in Northeastern Europe. I think when it comes to Central Europe, where your country is located, for example, we need to think more about air defense, missile defense. We need to think about strengthening our cyber capabilities and situational awareness, intelligence, that sort of thing. The answer may be different in Southeastern Europe, where we may need to engage more in naval platforms or subsurface platforms. So I think the answer depends upon where in Europe we are confronting Russian challenges, and I'd like to see us continue to refine that. So I think there's lots of room for improvement there. Secondly, I think there's lots of room for strengthening the approach, the strategic approach of the alliance toward not just the Russians, but the Chinese as well. We need to recall that the strategic competition unfolding in Europe right now is not simply a threat or challenge from Moscow, but it's a threat and challenge from Beijing as well. And that's manifesting itself right now, today, in Europe, uh, including in Slovakia. And I see that in terms of the cyber attacks that occur every single day against our governments, defense ministries, and militaries, but also at a, at a more uh, level of the pocketbook, so to speak, the intellectual property theft that unfolds all across Europe, including in your country, on a daily basis at the hands of the Chinese, who are stealing intellectual property, productive capacity, and ultimately jobs, European jobs. So I think the alliance can play a role there when it comes to cyber defense and uh, pushing back against those kinds of threats. So I think there's a lot more the alliance can do in the coming uh, months and years. Talking about what NATO could and should do, the alliance is the organization 
is not directly supporting Ukraine's fight. Everything is up to the member states. Should NATO try to do more, or is it not really necessary? I think right now, because Ukraine needs armaments for the most part, and because the allies are the ones that have that stuff, it makes sense to me that the member states have been taking the lead on an individual or bilateral, sometimes trilateral basis in terms of supporting Ukraine. Now, that doesn't mean the alliance hasn't played an important role. I think the alliance has. The rhetorical one is important sort of keeping all allies on the same page and showing the Russians a united front. But I think the alliance has also played the role of being a clearinghouse. It's one-stop shopping for those that want to find out what the alliance, what the allies are doing. And uh, it can play the role of, uh, of deconfliction in terms of what equipment and capabilities are needed and where and when. Going beyond that, you know, if we look to the future, it's possible this conflict could last a very long time, maybe not as hot as it is today. And if that's the case, I could foresee the alliance taking on uh, more of a, a role in coordinating and running and operating the training mission of Ukrainian forces on equipment, tactics, techniques, procedures, etc. So there may be a role over the medium to long run for the alliance. But for now, I'm content to see it continue to, to uh, coordinate, deconflict, and display the solidarity that's been pretty impressive so far. And Slovakia and Germany just announced that they are, that Berlin will supply Leopard 2 tanks, legacy Leopard 2 tanks to Slovakia in exchange for Bratislava sending uh, Soviet era fighting vehicles to Ukraine. And uh, it looks like a very good deal for Slovakia, in fact, in terms of strengthening uh, our armed forces. How do you assess such a deal and this kind of approach that is somehow preferable, especially by, by Germans? This kind of swaps, basically. Yeah, the swaps that you mentioned, I think, are an interesting characteristic of the way in which the West is aiding Ukraine, of course, because we have to provide aid that is consumable, so to speak, usable by the Ukrainians. And so the the most advanced platforms that we have in our militaries may not be very useful for the Ukrainians, at least not without months and months of training. So Yeah, the the swaps, I think, have been helpful. And in fact, they really seem to benefit all sides, right? I mean, all the parties involved. The Ukrainians get equipment that they know how to use or are familiar with. Secondly, it helps Slovakia, in this case, to increase its defense capabilities or improve them, at least. And then it also helps the Germans to modernize because they'll need to backfill whatever it is they're sending to Slovakia or other allies as filler, as backfiller for what those allies are then sending on to Ukraine. Now that said, that doesn't mean the Germans get a pass here, right, to some degree. And by that, I mean, there have been some of us that have been highly critical, uh, including some Germans, of the way in which their government has been responding to the calls for assistance from Kyiv. And by that, I mean the uneven response, the half steps, the, the one step forward, two steps back approach of the German government when it comes to its willingness to provide offensive weaponry. Uh, the government, of course, in Berlin announced a pretty significant change in this policy months ago, but now implementing it has been uh, something of a challenge in terms of the government's ability to manage its own domestic politics, but also to meet the, the really nearly insatiable demands of the Ukrainians. I think the Germans, from my perspective, I think they can do more, a lot more, a lot more quickly. But 
they're reluctant to do that. The swaps are a, a good intervening step, but I hope to see more. Jonathan, one last thing, and of course, this might be a, a longer debate, but uh, maybe in a nutshell, according to some allies, 2% GDP defense investments are increasingly considered a floor, not a ceiling. For example, Poland is really spending a huge amount of money and basically buying uh, everything these days or trying to buy everything. But also, and this is, I think, they're also the reality for, for, for the US, that NATO nations are facing economic problems, uncertainties, Inflation is up, uh, energy prices are up in such a situation. And of course, uh, we know that we need to invest in, into armed forces. But still, how to ad- maybe to advise politicians on how to communicate the need for increased defense budgets to the electorate? Because it's not always the most popular decision with the voters. You know, politicians everywhere, your country and mine, as well as elsewhere, they have to walk a fine line between representing the views and opinions of the people they represent, but also leading and sometimes telling people things they don't necessarily want to hear because they are harsh realities. I think when it comes to the latter, that is leading and explaining to people what is happening in the world, our political leaders can play an absolutely vital role in being forthright with voters about the challenge that we've that we face in security and how nothing is static in international affairs. There's always change. So we know that for about a quarter century, from the end of the Cold War until about the 2014 timeframe, Europe had very little to fear in terms of hard security challenges or threats. We obviously had some crises in the Western Balkans, but those typically did not spill over national borders in terms of military threats. We only really saw refugee flows right into uh, the rest of Europe. And of course, we had a refugee crisis in the mid-2010s stemming from the Middle East and Afghanistan. But nonetheless, these weren't really hard security challenges for which you invest a lot in defense necessarily. Since that time, the mid-2010s, though, the situation has changed dramatically. And here, I think politicians can do a better job of communicating the scope of the change and our need to respond to it. What we've done in the past simply won't work as an appropriate response to the scale of the challenge that we faced. And this all began with Russia upending security across Eastern Europe nearly a decade ago when it unleashed a hybrid war in Europe, it weaponized the energy trade, and it invaded and dismembered a sovereign, stable, democratic state. Now, at the same time, China has emerged as a major security threat today in Europe, as I mentioned, in terms of cyber attacks and the theft of our economic strength. I think if Europeans value their freedom, their lifestyle, and their futures, they need to take steps to protect themselves that are different than what we did during that post-Cold War era, again, from about 1990 until about 2014. Now, that doesn't mean we have to explode our defense budgets and go back to what life was in the Cold War, right? However, it do means we need to do more. And that includes in defense, not simply in defense, but it must include the defense uh, tool in our toolbox. Strengthening that's vital. And unless politicians are clear about the need for that strengthening, we're not going to achieve that objective. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all the other platforms. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on coffee. For the link, see also a description of this episode. 
Thank you for listening and stay tuned.